This is The Guardian. Today, the first of a special two-part investigation about two ordinary people who find evidence of a war crime and then decide to go undercover to find the man responsible. Before we start, a heads up. This episode contains extremely graphic descriptions of violence. If you're feeling in any way sensitive, especially with everything going on in the world at the moment, you might want to save this and come back to it another time. A few years ago, somewhere in the Syrian capital, Damascus, a laptop broke down. This particular laptop belonged to an office of a Syrian intelligence agency called Branch 227. And hey, wherever you are, good IT support is hard to find. So one of the commanders of this unit says, I know a guy. He's a young recruit to a militia working with the Syrian army, and he's good with computers. But what the commander didn't know was this young guy, he was also filled with doubts. Doubts that he's on the right side of this civil war that's been engulfing Syria since 2011. Whether he's doing the right thing, fighting on the side of the government. And when he starts looking through the laptop, trying to fix it, he sees something. A video. And even in a country where the government has levelled cities to the ground, killed hundreds of thousands of civilians, and disappeared tens of thousands of others, what he sees in that video leaves him astonished. What he does next is reckless. He knows who this laptop belongs to, what Syria's intelligence agencies do to people they think are traitors. But in that moment, he doesn't care. Something seizes him. He feels like he has to do this. So he makes a decision that's going to change a lot of lives. He copies the video, finds the contacts for a Syrian anti-government activist living in Paris, and he clicks send. In June 2019 is when I saw the clip for the first time in Paris. Uya Ungo, a professor of genocide studies, was one of the first people outside of Syria to see the footage sometime later. The activist living in Paris called him, said, I've got something, you have to see it. And together, they sat in the back of a quiet Parisian cafe. The activist makes sure there's no one looking over their shoulder, no one can see the screen. And he starts the video. You're just overcome with shock about the, the direct brutality of it. I mean, it looks like science fiction almost. And it doesn't look like violence from a movie, like Tarantino or something. It's really different. I mean, violence in an actual conflict, is, this is how it looks. Uh, but for somebody who had been watching the, the Syrian conflict for a decade on YouTube, I've seen millions of videos of lots of violence. And yet this was shocking. This is the story of a secret war crime committed by one of Russia's closest allies, the Syrian government, in a conflict with a brutal tactics we're seeing now in places like the Ukrainian suburb Bucha were pioneered and perfected. It's about 
two ordinary people who find shocking evidence of this crime and decide to go undercover, right to the heart of the Syrian regime and investigate it themselves. And it's about where this journey leads them and how they're still struggling to find their way back. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, investigating a war crime, part one, the search for the shadow man. It's been three years since the first time Uyo saw that video. Footage that would consume his waking hours with scenes that would come to him in his dreams and leave him looking over his shoulder. Now, we've come to Amsterdam to meet him. Me, one of our producers, Alex Atak, and Martin Chulov, The Guardian's Middle East correspondent, who persuaded Uyo to let him and us tell this story. So what are we looking at here? So this is the uh, NIOT Institute for War, Holocaust and Genocide Studies. Uh, it's an institute that was established in uh, 1945, actually the day after the uh, liberation on the 5th of May. Uya is an imposing guy with a thick beard. He dresses the way I always thought professors would before I went to university. In a tweed blazer and a sweater, but still a little rumpled. Like he spends his days hunched over dusty, oversized books in a library. The institute where he's based is in an old Dutch townhouse, right on the canals. Uh, it was owned by a guy called Niemeyer, who was, uh, was an Indonesian plantation owner. He was a you know, Dutch colonial. So he built this as his private house. So when you, when you walk up the stairs here, everything is... Uh, made of really expensive colonial wood. Shiny wood-panelled walls, high, ornate ceilings, and floors that creaked with every step. And for a place that studies the worst violence people can do to each other, kind of a fitting backstory. Well, he, uh, at some point, uh, uh, it was bought by the Deutsche Bank. The uh, German bank. The German uh, National Bank, yeah. And uh, because that was enemy property, it was dispossessed by the Dutch state after the liberation. And then only later uh, the institute came, came here. How odd to be studying, you know, the kind of violence you study in a building built by, like, the wages of colonialism, yeah. tobacco, yeah. and German banking. It's a, yeah, it's, a, it's ironic, or maybe it's entirely appropriate that we are here. And my argument is that basically every country needs an institute like this, because every country has skeletons in the closet. He led us into a meeting room where we met his colleague, Ansar Shahoud, a Syrian woman. She wore glasses and a thick jacket. It was still freezing in Amsterdam. As we started talking, she peeled off her hiking boots. So while the rest of us creaked around the room, she moved in silence. Uya, a university lecturer after all, I prepared a couple of slides just to give a little bit of structure. Had set up a PowerPoint presentation, which he took us through. Diagrams of the Syrian regime hierarchy, a chart laying out the chain of custody of the video. I don't know if this is helpful at all. And then, finally. Yeah, do you want to turn on the video maybe? Or we can show a few things that we... So, we are sorry about the graphics. And with that apology and warning from Ansar, they hit play. Okay, shall we? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> 
It's really good quality footage of what looks like a block of flats that have been raised to the ground. There's piles of dirt and rubble, stacks of car tyres, grey concrete pillars. And then a young soldier in green army fatigues appears on screen. He's holding an older man in a blue tracksuit by the back of his jacket. The prisoner's eyes have been taped shut, rolls of clear plastic tape around his dark hair. His hands are tied behind his back and the soldier, holding him by the arms now, walks him forward. And without much effort, there's no fighting back or struggle. He shoves the man forward and the camera follows him as he falls into a deep pit. He can't see where he's landed, but I wonder if he can feel them. The bodies. Men with their arms behind their backs, blood on their necks, faces frozen in shock and pain. None of them moving. I looked over at Alex at this point, and he was glaring at the screen. I think I had the same expression. You hear a shot, and the victim's legs kick in the air. A second shot, and slowly, he stops moving. If this were a film, some horror movie, the camera would linger on this pit, this scene from hell. But it's not a movie. And before you can catch your breath, the camera pans up again, and they've brought another prisoner. This one with a moustache and patchy hair, his eyes taped shut, and he's led to the edge of the pit and tossed in like rubbish. Ru, you hear a voice say, wait. And this time, the cameraman lingers for about 10 seconds on this frame of tires and clothes and bare feet and hands. He waits so long that I thought it might be over. And I realized I'd gone numb. Like my mind couldn't begin to start making sense of this until it could be sure it was finished. And now that it looked like it might be, I started feeling sick. And then the camera pans up and the soldier's holding another guy. It goes like this for six minutes, one man after another. I'd lost count, but later Uyur Ansa would tell us there were 11 of them, dragged by this soldier from a white van waiting in the street to this pit. The footage isn't grainy or shot from some secret hiding place. It's high definition. The soldiers want this captured. At one stage, the guy filming turns the camera on himself. He's in a military uniform too, but he's his grey. And he's grinning like a kid. Salute to you, boss. With your beautiful eyes, he says in the flourishing, exaggerated way Arab men often address each other. The same way I've heard my own uncles speak a million times. As the seconds go by, slowly, the soldier starts changing it up. Not just throwing the men into the pit. Sometimes he kicks them. A couple of times he tells the prisoners there's a sniper coming and they need to run. But they're blindfolded and they take a few steps and the ground opens up beneath them. The soldier lets them panic for a few seconds, and then... The first time I watched this video, it was this variety that I kept thinking about after. It sounds stupid, but 
It reminded me of the way you try to get through something mundane, like ironing or doing the dishes, making little variations along the way, turning it into a game just to keep things interesting. There was no anger, no passion, no hesitation. They looked bored. This wasn't just mass murder. It was work. In the end, Uya and Ansa counted 41 bodies in that pit, including the 11 we saw executed. Among them was a woman and a body that was smaller than the others. They think it's a little boy. What we're seeing here for the first time is clear evidence of a specific regime intelligence unit committing war crimes. Martin Chulov has been covering the Middle East for more than 15 years. This is unambiguous footage filmed by their own people. Uh, It was never meant to circulate. These were atrocities that were more or less made as as a trophy video to be spread amongst themselves. This was not for broader public dissemination. But since it's been leaked, that's exactly what we have, a damning indictment of the Syrian regime committing a war crime in real time. This has real consequences for the Syrian government. It's going to be very, very difficult for Bashar al-Assad to claim that this is Photoshop, a fabrication, a fraud, or a setup. He's been to Syria more than a dozen times to report on the country's civil war. It started back in 2011. Chaos and Syria, videos on social media sites show intense fighting across the country. Peaceful protests calling for an end to decades of repressive rule by Bashar al-Assad and his family. End one of the world's longest running dictatorships. But when the Syrian regime cracked down on those protests, brutal. Cell phone video of demonstrations met with bullets from security forces. They gave way to armed insurgencies across the country. News agencies are now reporting that security forces have since opened fire on these people. There was the civil war we all followed in the news. But in areas held by the government, Syria's intelligence agencies were fighting another war. It was against people, families, whole communities who were thought to be disloyal to the government. Tens of thousands of people disappeared. They've never been found. Before this footage, we've only ever had glimpses of what happened to some of these people. Those glimpses have come through testimony from people who survived Syrian prisons. Through pictures, thousands of bodies, tortured to death by the regime, smuggled out of Syria. And through satellite imagery, used to identify mass graves. But there's never been evidence like this. The act itself, a massacre of civilians, filmed as it's happening. This is the very first time we have clear-cut evidence of a regime unit doing exactly what they had been rumoured to have done. Assad and his officials over the years have claimed that any evidence of Syrian forces committing any atrocities is, is fabricated or it's opposition people disguised as regime officials in shooting or, or raping or torturing. But here is a fact that can't be contested. And it's, it's going to be very interesting to see what any tribunal or court 
is going to do with the evidence that is presented to them. And if we can pin this down, this particular event, to a date and time, to a moment in time, that is an essential component of any move towards restorative justice. It was way back in 2019 when Uya made that trip to Paris and saw the video for the first time. He returned to Amsterdam shaken, but as an academic who studies the perpetrators of genocide and other crimes against humanity, also kind of electrified. But rarely do we see in the entire history of violence footage of a massacre being committed of the perpetrators in action. You can read their facial expressions during the killing. That is absolutely unique. He and Ansar knew the world needed to see this footage. But if they just dumped it online, they worried its impact might be blunted. Just another gruesome video from a war that people had long stopped caring about. Or worse, it might be fed into the Syrian or Russian propaganda machines and spat out as a massacre committed by the rebels instead. I decided... Together with Ansar, we sat down and we said, why don't we make a little project out of this? This little project would take over their lives for the next three years. Uya and Ansar would excavate this footage, layer by layer, like archaeologists, trying to understand what exactly they were seeing. Who were these people? Why were they killed? And who killed them? We literally organized study sessions where we got together in each other's apartments and then went through the video because obviously two can see more than one. And that's how the puzzle came together gradually. The horror they felt watching the video never went away. But eventually, they started noticing other things. So there's very little talking. There's just repetitive steps. You know, take the victim from the white van, walk them to the pit, uh, make him stand at the edge of the pit, kick them in, shoot them in the head, maybe do a control shot if they're not dead yet, and repeat. And the second thing is the complete, not even the ordinariness, but the banality of the victims. The completely normal, lower middle class Syrian guy. I've seen thousands of these people when I was in Syria. By that he means nothing flagged these people as activists or opponents of the regime, or members of communities that the Syrian regime considered suspicious. They are obedient. There's almost nobody who protests. Not even a bit. Some of them have white zip ties and others have black zip ties. And that means they were picked up from different checkpoints, most likely, or in a different context. Yeah? Uh, and this you notice when you watch it more often. This is why, unfortunately, we had to watch it more often until we started getting nightmares of it. So these details, these kind of gruesome, morbid details, you realize it. And they're all part of the puzzle. They're all pieces of the puzzle. First before they could get to the bigger questions of who was responsible for these killings and why these people, who looked like civilians, had been rounded up and killed, they needed to figure out where and when this video was shot. And they had hints. The metadata of the video had a date stamp. 16 April 2013. 
And there was this piece of graffiti in bright red on one of the grey pillars in the background. And here you see the graffiti on the wall. There it said, here we froze it, and it says, Fatah Balad Yalda, uh, which gave us a first indication of more or less where it was. Fatah Balad Yalda. Yalda has been liberated. Yalda, a suburb in southern Damascus. Which was confusing, because at that time in the war, Yalda wasn't held by the Syrian government. Still, for more than a year, Oya and Ansa started calling what they were investigating the Yelda Massacre. The pair started circulating pictures of the site to people who had fled from the area, asking, does any of this look familiar? People who are born and raised in particular neighbourhoods, they only need, like, half an image to realise exactly where this is, because they know how each corner smells from, from, from having grown up in these neighbourhoods. I mean, the advantage of having... The only advantage of having so many Syrians outside the country is you can tap into that local knowledge that people have. So we, we took a couple of stills. We asked some friends who, who know Damascus really well. And eventually, they asked some refugees from a neighbourhood right next to Yelda, one called Tadaman. And those people knew exactly where this site was and what kinds of things happened there. This is Ansa. And it was uh, open that they executed people in this area next to the uh, Ottoman uh, mosque. So everybody said it's the hole where they executed people. This execution site had a nickname. And who called that area the hole? I mean, where does that terminology come from? From the resident of the neighborhood, Todamon. So the intelligence uh, executed people who are and arrested people who are under their territory or their control. So the residents of this neighborhood, even the loyal or uh, the regime uh, loyals, they used to call this area the hole. So everybody knows that it's the place where they executed people. So it's a local terminology. It's not us who came up with this uh, terminology. It was known as a place people were taken and never came back. Our video had been just a glimpse at the site, and we saw 11 people killed there, making 41 bodies in total. I wondered how many others had disappeared into the hole in Tadaman, and how many other holes like this were there across Syria. Figuring out exactly where these killings had taken place raised another question. Why? Why had these people been killed? For those who followed the Syrian war, Tadaman hadn't really caught much attention. Yeah, lower middle class, uh, informal settlements since the 1960s. And it's yeah, basically run-of-the-mill neighbourhood, nothing really particularly exciting there, really. In 2012 and 13, there was terrible fighting between the Syrian army and rebel groups for the suburbs of Damascus. One of the front lines ran through Tadaman, a poor neighbourhood of a few hundred thousand people. The war was being fought street by street. Areas were changing hands every few days. Sometimes, when the Syrian army took back an area, they take revenge on the people they suspected had helped the other side. But that wasn't true of the neighbourhood around the hole. As far as anyone knew, it had never been taken by the rebels for any length of time. There was no reason to take revenge against anyone there. It pointed to another possibility. The, the killing in this area was a form of cleansing. So cleansing the area of, uh, not of disloyal people, potentially disloyal people. 
potentially disloyal people. Not enemy fighters or those who would help them. Not even government critics. And Ansar told us it was cheaper to kill them than to throw them in jail. The cost of arresting people is, uh, was overwhelming for the regime budget back then, if we can say that. Uh, the regime couldn't actually uh, cover the cost of arresting, so they took decision, we think it's November 2012, to kill and eliminate anyone they arrest. Maybe that's why the soldiers looked so bored. This was just work, a chore. Who would carry out those kinds of orders? Who were these men who had slaughtered 11 people so, I mean, like it was nothing? Interesting. So when we first saw the video, the first thing we noticed is why does this guy have green military fatigues and the other guy has gray military fatigues? I mean, that suggested that they were under different jurisdictions or to work for different agencies. But they worked closely together and they seemed very friendly with each other. They seemed like they know each other. The soldier who looked like he was in charge, who actually did the killing, wore the olive green fatigues of the Syrian military. You can hear him in the video, barking at the men he's about to murder. Don't move. Keep walking. Hurry up. And asking at the end, are there any more? He wore a fishing hat, pulled down over his face, but you could still make it out. By the time we met Uyur and Ansar, They'd spent years of their lives staring at it, trying to read it for clues. Uyu has watched thousands of videos from the Syrian war. I asked him what exactly he saw in that soldier's face. Uh, yeah, he has a bit of a long face. It's a little bit boyish. Uh, his facial hair is not very thick. Um, You're he, pointing at my facial hair, yeah, by yeah, the way. A little, little bit like yours. <laughs> That's tough. I'm going to wear that. That's, um, and he has a very clear, well, he has, he has a scar above his left eyebrow. He's also have, he has dark circles under his eyes because of his work and because of the stress and because of all the smoking and the drinking and whatnot else. Relatively a sharp chin. When he smiles, he, he looks, and when he laughs, he looks actually rather boyish, almost a bit clowny, a bit, a bit clown-esque. Um, but when he looks serious and when he looks grim, then he has a piercing look. And that piercing look is something uh, very difficult to, to look at uh, for a longer period. Because then then you, you see the face of the killer. That I find difficult to bear, to be honest. Because lots of people have seen that look. Yeah, absolutely. And that face was all they had to start with. No name sewn onto a jacket or overheard being said out loud in the video. No badge or license plate on the van or anything else that might identify who he was. They created a network of locals, people still living in Tadaman, who became their field researchers. They'd get on good terms with the local officials, ask, who's responsible for security around here? Which unit? What are their names? Together, they'd start to build a detailed and harrowing picture of how the Syrian government had brutalised just one neighbourhood of the tens of thousands across Syria, kidnapping people and demanding money to release them, sexually assaulting the sisters or wives of those they captured to buy their freedom, and the killings, of which the footage of the Tadaman massacre was just one glimpse. 
They learned through their network that the agency that ruthlessly policed people's loyalty in the area was a Syrian military intelligence unit called Branch 227, a part of the government's vast universe of secret police. These military intelligence agents were feared across Syria for their power to arrest you without explanation, for the network of secret prisons they ran, in which an estimated 13,000 people, at least, had been tortured to death over the course of the war. Hiding their identities was part of their job. But it turned out that for all its power and paranoia, the Syrian government had failed to account for a key flaw in its security. A highly sophisticated tool, perfectly crafted to illuminate the shadow world in which its agents operated. One that Syria's most secret operatives, just like your great aunt and that guy you met once at a party 10 years ago, who still wishes you happy birthday every year for some reason, couldn't resist using. We believe that we that it would be a good good idea to search uh, in pro-regime social media to see whether we can find, whether we can match the face uh, of the perpetrator in the video, perpetrators, uh, with anybody who, who we could find on Facebook. So these, I mean, these killers, these intelligence agents, they have Facebook accounts? Many of them have Facebook accounts, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm surprised that something, an institution as secretive as the Syrian government, that there's like a yellow pages for them and it's Facebook. We wouldn't be surprised that after a while we would find Bashar al-Assad's secret Facebook page himself. Who knows? The regime is a small world. Almost every day, for more than a year, Ansar sat on Facebook, trawling through the accounts of Syrian military intelligence agents, one after the other, looking for the killer, someone she and Uya had come to call the Shadow Man. She would use the pictures that known regime agents were putting up and seeing who else was in there, if they had accounts, always searching for agents of Branch 227. She relied on her knowledge of the regime and Facebook's people-you-may-know algorithm and would add them, one by one, to a burner account she had set up under a fake name. So you were spending just hours looking through profiles. I mean, his, his face must be just burned into your brain. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. Yeah. Of course, you are obsessed to find him. This one time we were in Berlin again, just enjoying that kind of relaxed a few days out. And then uh, there was in a restaurant, there was a guy who had a scar uh, in, on his eyebrow. And we kind of froze. Everybody starts looking like him after a while, you know? And this was how they worked for nearly two years, hunting for the man with a scar over his right eyebrow, scanning through faces on a screen, seeing the shadow man everywhere they looked, and finding him nowhere, and working in total secrecy. They feared if the Syrian government learned this footage was out there, the young recruit who leaked the video could be in danger. They could be in danger. The killer might get spooked and delete his Facebook profile, scrub the internet of any sign of his existence, and a crucial clue to a crime committed during one of the bloodiest wars of the past decades would slip away from them. Sometimes, after hours spent watching and re-watching the footage and scrolling through hundreds of Facebook profiles, they'd go to this bar near the Institute in Amsterdam. It was on a canal with neon lights. They took us there. It was full of young Dutch people drinking and laughing and these two academics, a big bear of a guy and a slight woman, 
with short hair and glasses, moonlighting as detectives, looking for a mass murderer. Welcome to my life. You know, this is exactly uh, how we, this is how we run the research. You know, you you, you have to focus on this, uh, on this research, on the violence, and then you quickly have to kind of switch gears, and then just chill out. And, and we sat here a lot after doing a whole day of this massacre. We sat in a cafe, we had a drink, and then we we try to push it away. I mean, one of the more difficult things is about this research is that you can't share it with anyone. I mean, I haven't told my wife about it. I haven't told my parents about it. I haven't told my sister about it. I haven't told some of my closest friends about it. So that's just the two of us. That's it. Coming up, more scrolling on Facebook. And then a friend request. Early in 2021, a breakthrough. Ansar was scrolling through photos posted on the Facebook pages of military intelligence agents, and she saw in one a guy whose face she had come to know better than her own. I think when I saw his face, I look at the screenshot and then of the video and still shot of the video, and I, it's him. And uh, I contacted Uga. We found him. We found him. It's him. And I looked at him and it was unmistakably, this is the guy. He was in another agent's photo and looked like any guy in his 20s, sitting in a kitchen, smiling and playing with his phone. Dark eyes, thin beard and a scar across his right eyebrow. And because Syrian secret police still use Facebook like it's 2007, he was tagged. And I distinctly remember the moment of euphoria when we found him, you know, of all these... There must be tens of thousands of intelligence agents in Syria. What were the odds that not only did he have a profile, but that also that we flipped through it and we found him by recognizing him in, in one of the other photos? Their killer had a name, Amjad Yusuf. I have to admit, I was still trying to get my head around the fact that this guy who I'd watched kill nearly a dozen people without blinking had a pretty active Facebook presence and not even a private account. And, uh, As of now, it's still up. And this is the Facebook of Amjad. But just uh, as we click through his profile pictures, there's a picture of him at the gym, literally gym selfies, photos of the Syrian president. This is from the office. It's so banal. Yes, he is. Using her fake account, Ansar added Amjad as a friend. Amjad must have found her picture, showing half her face, wearing a sword necklace and a flower between her fingers. Interesting. Because after a few hours, the shadow man, with a public Facebook profile, accepted her. And Ansar decided to take a chance. She wrote him a message. Yes, we wrote a bit. I explained what I'm doing. I said, like, I am a Syrian from Homs. And I'm doing research uh, on the Syrian army. And I would like to talk to you. It wasn't a complete lie, but it wasn't the whole truth either. Uh, I am from Homs, originally from this certain neighborhood. I'm studying in Holland. My study, my thesis is about the Syrian army uh, rule in the war. And I would like to talk to you. Then he said, hello. And uh, he started answering, uh, like asking questions. 
were particularly in Homs, since when you are out of Syria, why you are out of Syria, uh, what are you doing exactly? Before she had a chance to figure out how she'd respond, her phone started buzzing. Then he caught. When you saw that he was calling you, what did you think? I was very excited. I wanted to see the guy to confirm that it's him. Who is it? How he speak? What he's going to tell us? And so did you answer? I did answer. Keep up. And I smiled. <laughs> Hello. How are you? Tomorrow, an interview with a war criminal. Thank you very much to Ansa Shahoud and her research partner, Uya Ungor, as well as to Martin Shulov, The Guardian's Middle East correspondent, whose coverage of this leak and investigation can be found at theguardian.com. That's it for today. We'll pick the story back up tomorrow. This episode was produced by Alex Atak. Sound design was by Axel Kakutier. The executive producers are Mithli Rao and Phil Maynard. We're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.